This week's episode of the America of America podcast is going to be just a little bit different. If you tuned in last week, you know that I am in my last semester of law school finals, and this has been a bittersweet experience as law school is ending, and I've had a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot, but it's also just very stressful because I want to go out on a good note, so I've been dedicating most of my time to studying. That being said, last week, as of when this episode comes out, was the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, and this has been weighing heavily on my mind, obviously doing a podcast about Oklahoma history and culture. One of the things that I have to think about a lot as a pivotal moment for the state of Oklahoma is, of course, the 1995 bombing. So today, instead of introducing anything new, instead of trying to come up with a new topic to read about or a new topic to research, I thought I would provide some of my reflections on the Oklahoma City bombing as well as go over a few housekeeping rules or housekeeping matters, as I did receive some interesting emails last week about my episode about Deep Deuce. And also, I want to share just some more personal information. I've tried my best in this podcast to keep my opinion as far away from the content as I possibly can. I want this to be a presentation of information and to you to use that information and come up with what conclusions you will. So obviously, my reflections are going to be a little bit from more from my perspective, and they're, like all perspectives, um, possibly incorrect or possibly wrong. So if I say something that you disagree with, I'm, I'm more than happy to hear anybody's to hear anybody's counterpoint or to hear anybody's criticism in good faith. And absolutely feel free to send those to me at review at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-U-T-A-U-Q-U-A, review at gmail. And uh, with that, let's get into the show. First of all, good morning. I hope everybody had a productive week last week. I hope everybody's had a pleasant and restful weekend, and I hope everybody's looking forward to a great week. I'm Will Milam, and this is the America of America podcast. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is going to be based around the Oklahoma City bombing, but it's not really going to be an episode about the Oklahoma City bombing. I I assume that most of our listeners will have a little bit of background as to the events that occurred leading up to in the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. In fact, I eventually want to make probably a series of episodes about the Oklahoma City bombing. I just don't have the resources right now to do that correctly. Now, if you're looking for a primer on what happened with the Oklahoma City bombing, I would recommend Sam Anderson's recent book, Boomtown, which is a really good chronicle of Oklahoma City of both its... Uh, present and its past. And I think that he does a really good chapter on the Oklahoma City bombing. But again, today, I want to offer some more personal reflections on that bombing rather than a synopsis of the bombing itself. If any of the listeners today have gotten the opportunity to listen to the introduction episode, so the first episode in this podcast, you will know that 
one of the events that made me want to start a podcast about Oklahoma history and culture was being in my father's law office when I was a kid and seeing an aerial photograph of the Murrah building destroyed and seeing the buildings near the Murrah building destroyed. And this was kind of a pivotal moment for me because it was a photo that I'd walked by a a lot when I would walk into my dad's office and I never bothered to ask my dad what that is, what, what the photo was of. And it makes me seem kind of dumb in retrospect. You know, honestly, maybe I was, but I knew what the bombing was and I knew what that photo was, but I never put together that that photo was of the bombing until I started when I was a little kid, my parents and I would go to mass at St. Joseph's Old Cathedral on 4th Street in downtown Oklahoma City. And it wasn't until going to, and if that church on 4th Street is literally across the street from the Murrah Building Memorial Site. So the, the Oklahoma City Memorial Site where you have the reflecting pool and the monument and the, the sculptures representing uh, one sculpture for every life lost. So it wasn't until we started going to church there and I would walk by that bombing memorial. And then one day I walked into my dad's office and I took another look at that photograph and I saw St. Joseph's Old Cathedral and it clicked for me that they were the same thing. And I was probably the only kid in Oklahoma that couldn't put that two and two together, but it was, it was a, it was kind of a big moment for me. And I think that what this should also imply is that I'm, I'm a bit of a hypocrite for doing uh, reflections at all because I wasn't even really alive when the bombing took place. Uh, again, if you've listened to that first episode, I talked about this, but I'll just reiterate it that I've actually seen footage. My mother was a, was a nurse. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner by trade, but she was a registered nurse um, in downtown Oklahoma City on that day. And there's footage of the victims and the first responders being brought into the emergency room. And there's footage of my mother in the hospital being pregnant with me. And I think at this point she was probably uh, five or six months pregnant with me. So it was very noticeable. So I could kind of see myself uh, in a way in that footage. So I was there, but obviously I wasn't sentient and I wasn't cognizant of what was going on. And even if I had been born, obviously I would have been way too young to understand the ramification of events going on around me. But that doesn't mean that I didn't grow up in the immediate aftermath. It, my experience of living in downtown, or not, I didn't live in downtown Oklahoma City, but living in Oklahoma City in the late 90s and the early 2000s was very much shaped by the memorial and it was very much shaped by the bombing. Primarily, this was because even though I was not a lot, or I was not sentient for the bombing. I grew up around many people that were, like I said, being in Oklahoma City in the late 90s and early 2000s, a majority of the people that you just came into contact with on a daily basis were in Oklahoma City on the day of the bombing. So everyone has their own story. The first story I want to relate as a reflection is my mother's story. And her story is largely centered around the events before she went to the hospital. She was actually at home that morning. And my parents and I grew, I grew up at my parents' house, which is actually a little bit outside the Oklahoma city limits. I went to school in Oklahoma city and I spent all my days in Oklahoma city, but I technically lived a little bit outside the city limits in kind of the East side. And she talked about when the blast actually went off that she was at home and she immediately assumed it was a sonic boom. And I 
remember hearing that when I was younger and I, I remembered it, but I didn't put much significance to it until I read uh, Sam Anderson's um, book, Boomtown. And in one of the chapters in Boomtown, Sam Anderson talks a lot about how in the post-war years, Oklahoma was used by the U.S. military and the U.S. government as a testing place for sonic booms and their effect on general populations. And eventually this drove the Oklahomans crazy. It's a, a too long, didn't read spoiler, just a spoiler if you don't want to read the book. It drove the citizens of Oklahoma City just absolutely nuts. But it never occurred to me that my mother knew exactly what a sonic boom sounded like because everybody who had lived in Oklahoma City for a long period of time knew exactly what a sonic boom sounded like. And of course, I think that that must have been the most rational explanation when you first heard the blast because no one in their right minds would have thought that there was a deadly bomb that had just gone off in downtown Oklahoma City. The other experience on the day of the bombing that has stuck with me came from a group of nuns uh, who were at the convent, which was also Villa Teresa's school, uh, about, I'd say, probably maybe 20 blocks away from the Murrah building. And unfortunately, that the nuns are no longer at that convent, but it operated as a school and a, a kind of a summer school um, in the 2000s, which, which I went to every summer. And I remember a couple of the nuns were telling me that on April 19th in 1995 that they had all the kids out on the playground and obviously they were pretty close to the blast. So everybody heard the blast and they they felt the blast and they knew that something bad had happened. So all they, they brought all the children inside and uh, they were just describing the, the absolute sheer panic because there wasn't much known for certain right after the blast had happened and they thought that there was going to be a second bomb somewhere. And uh, I guess there were reports that there was a second bomb somewhere. So you had, you know, a school full of small children, you know, not 20 blocks away from that original blast site, trying to take cover, you know, in a, in a school building that maybe was built to withstand tornadoes and thunderstorms, but, you know, we're not really sure if it could withstand a bomb. And they would just describe the fear and the, the anxiety and just the anguish that, that, you know, was with them that day. And it was something that obviously I couldn't, I couldn't experience firsthand, but you could just see the, the, the pain and the, uh, in the memories of, of April 19th, 1995. And I can also remember growing up, going to Bishop John Carroll's school, uh, for elementary school. And we had a family there who had several sons, uh, one of whom was a classmate of mine, but one of the older brothers was actually a survivor of the bombing. And, he was in the nursery when the blast had occurred and he was in the bathroom and I, the story goes, and I, I haven't confirmed this for, you know, maybe 18 years now, but story goes that he was playing under a sink and that the, the, the wall had collapsed around him and that the only reason that he was able to survive is because the sink had saved him, um, that from the, from the falling wall. And he, uh, survived. He had um, some facial scars, which you know were um, observable at that time and probably observable today. But that's a small price to pay for you know surviving the deadliest domestic terrorist attack in the United States history. And next, I want to turn to some reflections on the bombing itself and what the bombing means, and if we can take any meaning from the the horrific events that happened. And obviously, there's. It's really hard to make sense of something that happened like that. And every year when the uh, the anniversary of the bombing comes out, there's 
there's always a slew of social media posts or political takes to where we we use um, these horrific events to confirm our priors. And I'm not immune to that. Uh, I don't think anybody's immune to that. Obviously, it, it is frustrating when you see that happen. And it, I think that any response to that should make us uh, go take a long, hard look in the mirror and see if you know things would change if we put the shoe on the other foot. But it's one of those things that it's, it's a horrific event like that. It's really hard to make sense of. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about it for the last couple of years, and I really haven't come up with many answers if there's a simple explanation of something that needs to be rooted out in society that uh, that would either prevent stuff like that happening in the future or have prevented it at the time. And some of the only conclusions that I've come to, and again, these are, these are my personal opinions, uh, the first is that the undeniable, if horrifying, reality of evil, in that evil is a very real force in society. Obviously, I, I come from, I hold very certain theological and philosophical truths that perhaps a lot of listeners don't hold to, but I absolutely believe in the reality of evil. And I think that evil can infect uh, seemingly good or normal people. Um, and can cause people to do terrible, terrible things. I think, obviously, people can just be evil in and of themselves, and that one of the most horrifying things about the nature of evil is that it can infect you know, normal human beings, and that normal human beings are though created good by God, can perform mass acts of cruelty and mass acts of violence like this that we can't really understand. Along a similar vein, but a little bit different, uh, I think one of the things that I take away from the Oklahoma City bombing is the horrors of the end results of ideology, of specific political ideologies or racial ideologies or ideologies about the end of the world um, that can infect normal people. And this, honestly, I find much scarier than evil in and of itself. Obviously, evil, evil in and of itself is, is the scariest, but ideology and its progeny and its results uh, can infect normal and seemingly good people in that people who are not sick or people who are not evil in and of themselves can do horrific things in the name of ideology. And in that, obviously, I'm thinking about Tim McVeigh himself as a seemingly normal um, dude who ended up committing one of the greatest acts of evil and, you know, turned into you know, nearly an inhuman monster. And I think the worst part about that, aside from obviously the horror that he inflicted, is that the, he, even to the end of his days, I don't think ever showed any remorse for it. That, uh, you know, blatantly murdering innocent men, women, and children in cold blood, that he could never show any kind of remorse or show any kind of understanding of the horrors that he had inflicted. And I know that uh, he would go on to say that uh, the the innocents were, were uh, you know, a casualty or a, a piece of collateral in the action. But it's it was just horrifying to to see someone who might not actually be a sociopath or might not actually be evil in and of himself, but be someone who was so inflicted with with racial and political ideologies that he would feel that it was right and just to do something so terrible. And that this 
in the end of the day, I think is the end results of these kinds of political and racial ideologies that if someone believes something that much that eventually you will kill for it and you will kill innocence. And I guess it, if there's any cautionary tale to take out of that, that to be very wary of ideas and philosophies and ideologies like that, that would take a normal person and convince a normal person that mass actions of violence or the dehumanization of your opponents or your political enemies to the point to where you are okay with murdering them or that you are complicit in their deaths to avoid things like that because that will make you less human and that will dehumanize you. And that obviously it's, it destroys your soul as much as it destroys the souls of others. So I guess maybe a good rule to follow is never adopt a political or racial ideology that would make you be complicit in the, uh, the deaths of innocence that would disconnect you that far from the natural law to make you be something almost inhuman. I remember sometimes that uh, Tim McVeigh's last words were um, a section of William Ernest Henley's uh, poem Invictus. Uh, I think the poem goes something like, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Um, and then the last verse uh, ends with the most famous lines of, uh, I'm the captain of my fate, I'm the master of my soul. I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. Sorry, I got that crisscrossed. Um, and that, I think, is horrifying that a guy could do what he did and then go to the end and still believe that what he had done was right, that that, like I said earlier, that a guy so divorced from the natural law that he could not, he could not uh, uh, understand that. I mean, I guess he he absolutely understood it what he had done. He just didn't believe what he had done was wrong. That it's hard to fathom what kind of forces can bring a person to believe that, and it's horrifying. And it's it's there's a reason that you know it'll stain the consciences and the souls of everybody from Oklahoma or who's been to Oklahoma, you know, for, for many years to come and it should haunt us. It's, 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 um, it truly is a real life horror novel, which is why I, uh, cringe where I get a little bit uncomfortable whenever I get on my, my, uh, social media feeds, um, you know, between April 17th, April 19th. And I see, uh, some very kind of, cheap political takes that I, I don't think are very well thought out where, um, you know, people equate opposition to socialism with Tim McVeigh or, you know, on the other side, people equate atheism to Tim McVeigh and that somehow this, uh, this is a way to characterize all of your political or religious opponents. Um, I mean, it's dumb. Don't do it. Uh, like I said, we're all, we're all kind of guilty of it to some extent, but it goes for, I think, all ideology, that, that all ideology, whether it be on the right and the left, in, the, in any sort of political whatever, if you get to the, you take these ideologies to their, to their logical conclusions, this is the result. The result is death and destruction. But then again, um, these are still thoughts that I'm, uh, that I'm working on, and I'm, I'm happy to hear your interpretations of this event as well. Um, so again, uh, I have that, uh, I have that 
email um, listed in the show notes. Um, feel free to send me your thoughts. Uh, I know we have a lot of listeners outside the United States, um, especially in the United Kingdom as well as India. Uh, if you have any interest in sending me, you know, when you heard about the Oklahoma City bombing or, you know, what, what your thoughts on these subjects are, I'd, I'd be really glad to hear them, um, especially from from people who are outside the context of the United States. I think that I would learn a lot from that. And I hope that you as well are learning something from this. And with that, that concludes my reflections on the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, I want to take this time now to do something that we really haven't done, and that's to go back and revisit a previous topic because I recently received some uh, information that I received over email from a friend of mine from college named Davis, who I'm really appreciative that he sent this to me. Uh, he had listened to last week's episode about deep deuce, and especially when I was talking about how deep deuce kind of died out in the end parts of the civil rights movement when... Uh, when desegregation was going on and that there were um, cheaper housing arrangements available at other parts of Oklahoma City and how I thought that maybe that was a little bit of a simplistic explanation. I thought that there might be more complex forces going on there. And Davis, who's a native of Tulsa, uh, sent me some really interesting information about a parallel um, happening that was going on at the same time in the 60s and 70s in Tulsa with Greenwood. And if you're from Oklahoma or from the United States and the term or the place Greenwood uh, sounds familiar, that's because it should be. Greenwood was the um, otherwise known as uh, Black Wall Street, the very prosperous African-American area of Tulsa that was burnt and destroyed and rioted and looted through in the in the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. Now, it's obviously most famous for the Tulsa race massacre of 1921 or most infamous, rightly. But Greenwood actually was largely rebuilt and was a um, was a thriving community again after the Tulsa Race Massacre. Maybe not to the extent that it was before 1921, but it, it did serve still as a community later on until uh, urban renewal and um, the, the replanning of the city in the 1960s and 70s. Davis included a, uh, an excerpt from a local Tulsa news station that included some interviews um, talking about Greenwood and the post-1921 uh, incident, saying that from 1922, even up until the late 1940s, there were up to 300 Black-owned businesses in that area that were largely pushed out with uh, the construction of I-244 in Tulsa, and that today there's only about 10 buildings left. This is, in my opinion, a travesty, as Greenwood, as well as Deep Deuce and Oklahoma City were major centers of cultural commerce, were major centers of history, and major centers of memory for the residents of both Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and that by the destruction of these places, we tend to forget. And if it were up to me, I would make every single um, attempt to preserve this history. But I thought that was a really interesting piece of information that was obviously highly relevant to uh, last week's episode and uh, the kind of running theme of episodes that we've been going on with the last couple of weeks. So um, Davis, thank you very much for sending that to me and to every other listener. If you have anything similar or any thoughts you'd like to add, please send those to me as well. 
Um, I'm going to end today with a little bit of piece of personal news that um, I think is relevant. Uh, at the end of my finals and um, when I graduate um, from law school down here in Dallas, uh, I have made plans to return to Oklahoma City uh, to move into um, a friend of mine's house. In fact, it was the same house that uh, is near the original deep deep spot. So I'm actually going to be moving to a spot near that. So I'll um, hopefully take the time to be able to walk through old deep deuce and um, hopefully soak in uh, the history and pay pay um, its proper respects. Uh, so I'm very excited to return to Oklahoma. So at that point, uh, I'll be I'll be an Oklahoma podcaster, actually living in Oklahoma rather than you know being an expatriate like I am now. So um, th- I I would appreciate your your thoughts and prayers as uh, as I go through that transition in my life because. Right when I get back, I'm going to be heavy duty studying for the uh, for the bar examination. So that'll be presenting its next set of challenges. But uh, again, I've I've been super appreciative of everybody's support so far, and we're going to end the episode there today. Um, again, uh, I'm very appreciative to my my good friend Jester Rolakati and everybody else for helping me with the research, and uh, especially you, the listeners who. Uh, you know, wake up every Monday morning and throw this on, and and I, I'm I'm very um, blessed with the way the podcast has been going, and uh, so I'm going to sign off today and go back to studying for law school finals. But again, I hope everybody has a great week coming up. And uh, as always, I'm Will Milam, and this is the America of America podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>